Welcome back to the uh, first episode of the SoCode podcast of 2023. Um, for those of you tuning in for the first time, the podcast is, is, is really a platform for sharing best practices, theories and individual stories from our guests that hopefully leave us all with some food for thought um, and some valuable lessons to take into our day. Um, so on, on, on this week's episode, uh, we have Paul Jervis-Heath. Uh, I met Paul last month, actually, at the Cambridge Product Management Network event. Um, Paul did a really fascinating talk on uh, designing for an uncertain future, which uh, I, I thought was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, I learned a lot from it, certainly. I know um, other attendees also had some great things to say about that. Uh, in fact, Paul, I had to... Um, gonna have to admit I did actually steal one of your uh, stories for my own morning stand-up um, so hopefully you can share that soon um, but yeah no it was a really brilliant session and I was I, I was thrilled when Paul agreed to uh, come onto the podcast and um, uh, do a revised version for, for, for everyone so thank you Paul for joining me um, so I guess before I go into it Paul why don't you introduce yourself to uh, to our listeners yeah, I'm Paul Jervis Heath. I'm a Chief Creative Officer and a founding partner of Modern Human. Um, I've been a designer now for uh, over 25 years. Uh, and in that time, I've designed everything from uh, dashboards for autonomous vehicles to smart home appliances. I've designed um, in digitally integrated retail stores, publishing services that accelerate the pace of human discovery, geospatial information services to uh, enable conservationists to protect endangered species. Uh, I've designed um, libraries, I've designed museum exhibits, I've designed a call centre, uh, I've designed augmented reality toys, basically you name it, um, I have um, designed it in the last um, 25 years. Um, and increasingly um, what, I'm, what I'm looking at is um, what we're, how the future um, is going to be shaped by the products that we design and the services that we design. Um, quite the portfolio then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I think I think I remember from the talk. Um, you know, in terms of uh, again, I don't know how much you can share or not, but in terms of some of the brands you've worked with, I mean, that's quite an impressive list, if I remember correctly, Paul. Yeah, we've 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 done over a hundred projects over the last ten years, and we've worked with clients like uh, Arm and the BBC and, and Tesco and. Sony, we've worked with the University of Cambridge, we've worked with the United Nations, and um, we've won our whole stack of design awards as well along the way. Fantastic. Um, and um, Modern Human, obviously you're the founding partner and um, chief creative officer. Can you tell us a bit about a bit about Modern Human? Certainly, yeah. Modern Human's a, a design practice and an innovation consultancy. So we, um, we help clients to predict what's next through um, a combination of ethnography and behavioural dynamics. And then we use those predictions to design products and services and environments. Um, what we're really all about is empowering and, and liberating ordinary people through meaningfully engaging them throughout the design process. So we do a lot of co-design, we do a lot of um, co-creation, um, designing with people rather than just simply um, designing for them. Brilliant. Well, um... <clears throat> We're going to jump into today's topic, I guess, um, and uh, I know there were some great stories you shared along the way at the, at the last talk, I guess. I appreciate this is a, a bit more of a condensed uh, version of, of that talk, but hopefully we'll get to hear some of those um, you know, brilliant stories that I think will stay with me for a long time. Um, so, um, so, Paul, what are we talking about today? 
Well, what I really wanted to talk about is how um, organisations think about the future um, and how, how they think about the future impacts on strategy. You know, um, strategy is really all about thinking about where an organisation is going. And so, you know, actually being able to anticipate um, future moves in the market, but also future moves in terms of technology, people's behaviour, people's needs, they're all kind of valuable skills to be able to drive a strategy forward. Whether that's a, a whole organisation strategy or a product strategy or a portfolio strategy for a product manager. Sure. <clears throat> um, I guess... Um... You know, one of the things we, I remember you talking about um, at, at your talk at the event um, was how a lot of, a lot of your work involves designing things that don't, don't yet, uh, don't exist yet. Um, so how do you, what's, what's kind of your process? How do you go about predicting the future when you're partnering with a client? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Uh, and I'm really interested in how organizations think about the future and also the relationship between our understanding of the future and strategy. And when we think about the, the past, the present and the future, we often imagine kind of a, a timeline. But the past is everything that's happened. And in the West, we put the, 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 the past on the left and then we draw an imaginary timeline from left to right in a straight line going through the present to the future. But the implication when we draw a picture like that is that there's only one future. And of course, that's not really true. There are lots of possible um, and potential futures. And there's a danger that that sounds a bit, um, a, a bit out there, you know. Uh, but I'm not talking about like quantum mechanics and the multiverse. I'm talking about the fact that there are an infinite number of possibilities for things that could happen. They're based on the actions and reactions of billions of people. And some of those possible potential futures are more likely than others. Some of them are probable. They're probably going to happen. The likelihood is high. Some of them are plausible. You know, they might come to pass if certain things happen along the way, if certain chains of events kind of happen. Um, and some of them are just kind of possible, which also means of all of the possibilities, you know, there are, there are other things that are unlikely, implausible or impossible. And what um, we all kind of um, come to understand is the future isn't static. You know, actually... We affect the future with the decisions that we make, and, and that effect accumulates over billions of people. When we're thinking about strategy, there's also some potential futures that are more desirable to an organisation than others. So when we're thinking about um, future strategy, we have to identify what potential futures are more or less likely, which ones are more or less desirable, and then when planning strategy, what we want to understand is how we can make the more desirable ones more likely. And that, in a nutshell, is what we're doing when we're creating a five-year vision and a five-year strategy for a client. So, you know, if you're a visual thinker like me, it helps to predict, it helps to picture the future like a cone expanding out from the present rather than that straight line that I mentioned at the beginning. So to sort of digress from your question a little bit even further, um, it helps if I illustrate with an example. So um, the example I kind of give is, I think it's very unlikely that we're ever going to be paying for our daily coffee or our weekly groceries with Ethereum or Bitcoin. But I think blockchain is a really kind of exciting technology. So that sounds like a, a contradiction, but actually the difference 
between those two things is, is kind of um, uh, illustrative. There are three reasons why I don't think we're ever going to be paying for everyday things with Bitcoin or Ethereum. The, the first one is the value is too unstable. You know, if you can imagine um, the, the fluctuations in the value of Bitcoin or, or Ethereum means you could be paying wildly different prices for your coffee day to day. Which means that if you're a coffee shop, you have to decide whether you want to update your prices constantly or make ra radically different margins on each sale, day-to-day, you know, -day, hour-to-hour. You know, now, if we think about what might happen in the future, that variability might not be permanent. So that brings us to the second reason. It's actually harder to accept Bitcoin or Ethereum at the moment than it is fiat currency. You know, you'd have to change a bunch of things, and there aren't kind of well-known, easily accessible kind of routes to get started um, accepting Bitcoin or Ethereum if you're a grocer or you're a, 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 a coffee shop. It's also hard from the customer perspective too. I mean, I'm sure you've kind of played with um, cryptocurrencies and probably set up a cryptocurrency wallet. It's not It's not a trivial exercise. You know? It's, it's, not, yes, a, um... it's not, <laughs> not a thing you've ever done in life, right? Um, <laughs> So, it's, um, not, it's not been easy. No, I, can, no. I can promise you that much. It's uh, yeah. some wild fluctuations <laughs> in my portfolio from that front. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and of course there'll be a whole heap of companies who are who are working on making Bitcoin and Ethereum easier to transact in. And that brings me to my final reason. You know, even if you could easily um, pay for a, your morning coffee in Bitcoin, why would you? What do you gain? That's really important because when you're starting, when you're thinking about anticipating adoption of particular technologies, it's really useful to understand motivation. Because until there's actual, until someone creates a functional benefit for both the vendor, the person who's selling the coffee or the groceries, and the person who's buying the, the coffee or groceries, then it's really unlikely that kind of mass adoption happens. Now, what 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 um what the the the, the kind of people who are kind of boosting crypto always then kind of bring up is crypto trading you know and they point to crypto trading as evidence that we're all going to be using cryptocurrencies in the future but of course you know if you think about um, financial trading the advantage is really clear those fluctuations that you just mentioned Marie, kind of give the crypto trader the opportunity to you know buy and sell at different prices so they actually create the, the job of crypto trading in a way and of course, if you're if you're if you want to become a crypto trader, then you have a really strong incentive to overcome barriers to trading in crypto. So, what I always say is that you you can't tell an awful lot about the everyday experience of um, uh, of spending money um, by by looking at kind of crypto trading. The rise in crypto trading doesn't tell us anything about the likelihood of ordinary people paying for everyday purchases using Bitcoin or Ethereum. And that's often a mistake people make, you know, that they see a technology, they decide it's good for one application and solves one need, and then they see this as a signal that it solves all needs. Um, and that's never been the case, and that's one of the causes of, uh, of hype, and that's one of the trend dynamics that we look out for when we're analysing um, trends and, and adoption and things like that. There is, of course, one final possibility to, to consider when it when it comes to uh, paying thing, for things with cryptocurrency. If you imagine instead of um, Bitcoin or Ethereum, but if you're going to pay for a coffee, imagine paying for it in Costa coin. You know, uh, imagine a, a crypto-based loyalty currency for a large um, coffee chain. That's one way that cryptocurrency might find its way into the mainstream. 
you know, if a loyalty scheme like Tesco Club Card or Nectar or one of the big coffee shops backs their points off a, a custom cryptocurrency, custom blockchain, there would be lots of advantages to them um, in, in terms of, you know, having their own programmable currency. And the customer might not even know about it. You know, they just use their app as usual. The other route is for a national currency to flip to being a cryptocurrency. And I think we've seen that in, in some uh, countries. And obviously that creates some pretty significant privacy questions when the government can track every, you know, every, um, every pound that's spent in Britain. Um, so that's probably a good point to, to leave this thought experiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. There's, um, <clears throat> there was a, there was a quote you used during the talk last week that I, I haven't been able to shake. Um, and I'd be actually interested to hear your perspective on this and how this uh, quote, I guess, translate into you, translates to your daily interactions with, with, with your clients. But that was, uh, and do forgive me, I can't remember where the quote was from, but I do remember the quote. And I think it was something like, the future is already here. It's just um, unevenly distributed. Is that right? Is that, am I... That's right. That's spot on. Spot yeah. on. It's a quote by uh, William Gibson. So William Gibson's a, a science fiction author. And his first novel in 1982 was called Neuromancer. Uh, and it was um, a hell of a debut. It launched the cyberpunk genre of science fiction. It popularized the term science, uh, cyberspace. And it won the Nebula Award the Hugo Award and the Philip K. Dick Award. So basically the science fiction writers um, triple crown. And you're absolutely right. Uh, William Gibson said the future's already arrived. It's just unevenly distributed. And so I use, um, I, I often kind of uh, refer to that quote as a way to describe how we understand the tech, what, what I call the texture of the present, because you know, we've, we've seen a lot of um, coverage at, at the moment about chat GPT, you know, so your audience being a knowledgeable kind of set of product managers and probably designers and product people, people who are product connected, will have LinkedIn feeds full of chat GPT and AI and machine learning. I'm sure yours is, mine certainly is. Um, and of course, that means that we tend to think that everyone is um, like really aware of um, uh, AI and these kind of services that they can use for, for using AI and machine learning. But of course, if you go into a classroom and ask a, a teacher about the implications of artificial intelligence on teaching, they might, might not have heard of chat GPT. Or you go into a, a, a doctor's surgery and sit down with a GP and ask them about how, um, you know, uh, artificial intelligence might change medicine. And again, they won't, have, they won't have heard of it. We tend to think of, you know, an invention kind of arriving and having an equal effect all over on society. And of course, it doesn't work like that. Uh, one of the stories I tell to illustrate, um, uh, and I think it might be the story that you borrowed for your, uh, your stand-up, <laughs> is, um, so as we all know, um, in 1969, uh, two two humans landed on the moon for the first time ever and of course they landed on the moon and made a, a live broadcast from the the moon's surface back to mission control in houston and you know we all know the story of the moon landing the astronauts famous words from the lunar surface and that happened on the 20th of july 1969 now a year later 
There was a chap called Bernard Sado in 1970. He wasn't on the moon at all. He was in Puerto Rico. And, and, and Bernard worked for the US, for US Luggage, which is a company that made suitcases at the time. He was at San Juan Airport in Puerto Rico, and he's just hanging out in the airport waiting for a flight. And he sees a, a, a luggage porter use a, a wheeled luggage rack to move suitcases. And so that gives him this idea. And so when he gets home, he gets off the plane, goes home, and he starts tinkering in his garage, attaching wheels to suitcases. And he finally applies for a patent for his wheeled suitcase in, in 1972. And he's granted patent number 3653474. But you know what? In 1972, the wheeled suitcase was a total commercial flop. Sado tried for months to convince retailers to stock the wheeled suitcase. And he heard so many times that... Um, uh, that women didn't travel alone and that their husbands would carry the suitcases and nobody needed a suitcase with wheels on, which, of course, was, was nonsense then and it's, it's nonsense now. Uh, Macy's bought a few. They didn't really sell in huge numbers. And then a pilot called Robert Plath hadn't seen Sado's invention, I don't think, but had the same idea. But instead of sticking four wheels on a suitcase and have it kind of trundle along like flat to the ground, he sticks two wheels on a suitcase and a long handle. But he was a pilot for Northwest Airlines. So rather than try and sell them he, uh, to, to, to kind of department stores and places like that, he just started selling his, um, his uh, roll-along trolley to um, fellow crew members. So, of course, it was flight attendants and pilots and people like that who had these first kind of, um, of PATH's first kind of prototypes. And, of course, they'd get off the plane at the end of the long flight. And you notice that the flight attendants are always the last off the plane, but they're always the first. They overtake you somewhere. <laughs> they whoosh straight down the airport. Always, always at checkout before we get there and, and through customs. They're, they're, at, they're at passport yep. control, whoosh straight through, like a rat up a drain pipe. Um, and, um, and, of course, the business travellers saw um, the, the, the flight crew get off the flights with these fancy wheeled suitcases and thought, yeah, I want a bit of that. I could travel through the airport as quickly as they do if only I had a wheeled suitcase. Um, and so that's why they took off. Now, the interesting thing, like, why am I talking about wheeled suitcases? Well, first of all, I find it baffling that we put people on the moon and return them safely to Earth a year before anybody thought to put wheels on a suitcase. Right? That, that idea is, is kind of baffling to me. But then even when we'd taken the steps of putting wheels on a suitcase, it took 18 years to actually catch on this idea of having a suitcase with wheels on. And it illustrates this idea about trend dynamics. You know, actually, the wheeled suitcase only took off because people saw flight crews pulling them along. Um, and so, yeah, that, 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 kind of, um, that kind of blows my mind that it took 15 years for the, for the wheeled suitcase to reach uh, mass adoption. And that actually, it was, it was really dependent on the, um, the, the way it was introduced mm. rather than the invention itself. But we do, we have this kind of, we have this habit of thinking, oh, you know, ChatGPT and, and DALI and, you know, all of these kind of AI and machine learning things that we're all kind of talking about in January 2023, that, you know, that they're going to be the rage for everyone, everywhere, all at once. And of course, that's not the case, actually. 
you know, we know that the diffusion of innovations means that, you know, there'll be some people who jump onto them, they'll use them really quickly, but they'll get, they'll get pretty sick of, of them really quickly and they'll move on to something else. You know, you're early adopters, you know, if you're a, a product manager, your early adopters are only there for a short space of time. So, you know, you, you kind of want them to prove the case for your product to the early majority. Mm. So that you get some more kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, static, kind of secure customers onto your product, um, and, and kind of spread it like that, because the early adopters will be on to the next thing, and you know that's uh, the dynamics that that we see. And so the texture of the present isn't as uniform as we think of it, um, and we have to take that into account when we're when we're understanding trends and how widespread trends are likely to be, how the adoption of certain technologies is going to arrive at certain industries and which industries are, tend to be early adopters and which tend to be laggards with which types of technology. And all of this trend dynamics is stuff that we have to kind of think about when we're thinking about a future and a strategy for a, for a, particular, uh, for a particular client. The other thing we, we have to be careful to um, take into account is boosting. Because, of course, one of the reasons that you see particular interest in a particular technology is because um, VCs and investors come along, they uh, invest in companies in that technology area, and then they have to talk up that technology area so that people, you know, the, 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 the later investors will come along and invest in that technology and they'll get some of their money back. And of course, those early founders of those companies have to talk up that technology because they're looking for customers. Um, and so you see this kind of boosting effect. Mm. And that tends to amplify um, kind of trends, you know, so that actually early adopters hear about them and, uh, and they seem more significant sometimes perhaps than they are. But you, you see these kind of uh, peaks and troughs in the types of technology that we're talking about. So, you know, last, last year it was all about NFTs. You know, and, and and we were all going to be NFT kind of crazy. And this year, it's it, it, it's the year of kind of chat GPT and, and AI and, and, and Dali and all of those kind of things. But this isn't the first time we've been talking about AI. AI was, um, was a popular topic kind of five or six years ago. And then again, five or six years ago um, uh, 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 before that. And... If you're as, as old as me, you can remember uh, Deep Blue, the IBM uh, machine, beating Gary Kasparov at chess and what that meant for the world and, you know, uh, AI and machine le uh, learning. And that was, I think that was over 20 years ago now. So, you know, um, AI and machine learning is definitely uh, not a new thing, but we see these kind of cyclical kind of um, uh, trends and another trend dynamic that you see is disillusionment, you know, that we're all kind of talking about um, the pictures that we can generate with um, with Dali and you know how it's going to change creativity forever, and then of mm -hmm. course in three months' time we're all a bit sick of it, and they all start to look a bit the same because we've generated that many that um, we, we've understood the extents, and then we become disillusioned with the technology, and that's why you you get that fallow period where people don't talk about it for a long time. So these trend dynamics are things that you have to take into account as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that, that story illustrates it so well. Um, you know, go, going back, what, nearly 50, 60 years now, that story really illustrates. Uh, and by looking at the past, I think, you, you know, you're so right. We need to um, think about think about the future differently. 
um, you know, pastors provided the the case study for it. Um, so, but how how would you say that relates to what an organisation can you know chooses to do in the present to affect um, how they go about things in the future? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think uh, I think you're tr- trying uh, trying gently to bring me back to to kind of practice and practical matters. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no, no really- not at all. These are, these are all very useful, and I think, um, in fact, I'm, I, I want you to come back to the NFT example in a minute, actually, because I remember something really useful you said about that. I, I think this this kind of understanding of the future kind of changes how you strategize. So when you incorporate mm. the futuring into organizational strategy activities, you start to be able to anticipate the future rather than just react to uh, to today. And there's um there's a whole design field that specializes in using design to understand the future. It's called speculative design or critical design, and it's something we've been incorporating into our design practice at Modern Human for the last five or six years. Uh, and the, the best way to think about it is that um, usually design is a process that creates a product to solve a known problem for a known customer. So it will typically use user research to design the optimum solution based on the world as it exists now and what people need to do and what they're trying to get done and all of those kind of things. But in contrast, speculative design is a critical process. So it uses design to ask questions or rather um, designs interventions as provocations for how um, the world could be. So that sounds quite theoretical, but the way we use it is to create concepts for possible futures as a provocation to a vision and a strategic uh, direction that we're recommending to a client. Um, And nowadays that, that kind of speculative strategic form of design makes up for about three quarters of our work that we do for um, all sorts of the, 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 the clients I mentioned at the top of the show. Um, but this intersection of future studies and design and strategy is a really interesting space um, to, to play in at the moment. And I, I think, you know, we all know the, the, the kind of challenges that we're, we're facing. We're facing irreversible environmental degradation. We're facing in a, a recession in the UK that this morning we were told isn't going to last as long as they thought it was going to last which is the good news, but could still last about five years, which is the bad news. Um, and we, we, you know, there's significant challenges we have to address globally. And, you know, so, so these tools all provide a way to involve everyone in, in co-designing and co-creating um, uh, uh, solutions. You know, I, I, I go into design to, to, to try and make a difference and, uh, and set up modern humans to try and empower and liberate um, ordinary people and so you know I'm really keen that we get the, 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 the tools of design and you know not just designing kind of objects for people but also these ideas of speculative design into the hands of companies but in, and, and into the hands of real people because when you start using design as a provocation rather than as a solution you can um, very quickly kind of design things and show them to people as, as kind of ideas when you've got a picture of an idea, you know that you're both talking about the same things. You're both critiquing that idea. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, but I think it's true that actually having people respond to a designed provocation gives you much more interesting responses than you know um, than, than you might get if you just kind of stop people and ask them for their responses to um, existential threats to the human race, for example. You know, actually. 
showing them what that might mean, what that might look like, how their lives might change, the types of products that they might be using in the future, those kind of things, helps them to actually think about how they could adapt their everyday lives to lower their carbon footprint or, you know, and to, to um, rely less on, um, on a private car and more on public transport or, you know, all of these kind of things, how we can um, live more sustainably and, um, and change their, their lifestyles. Because so much of the, um, the rhetoric around things like climate change at the moment is how individuals can, can, can change their um, lifestyles and consume less. And of course, when you put the products or services around that to help with that, it becomes, um, it becomes much easier to actually lower your carbon footprint and, and do all of those things. So I think speculative design is, is interesting because it takes away some of the guesswork by putting these provocations in, mm. people's, in people's hands and help them kind of respond to it and involved in co-designing what they might be. My, um, <clears throat> I guess my, my, my final question for you, Paul, is around a, a project that you're very proud of, that um, let's say you've worked with a client and something you've kind of created which is future-proof or you've created with the future in mind is there an example you could share <clears throat> oh i'm i'm, I'm um <laughs> future-proof is a bit like user-friendly isn't it it's one of those when you get the the list of specs through or the brief from the client and it, and it included in the spreadsheet somewhere is and it must be user-friendly and it must be future proof. What I, I would I, I would always say to, to any client who asks for something to be um, future proof is um, well that's that's really not going to, to happen. And actually, what you can although you know speculative design lets you use design as a question to to, to kind of think about and, and and a provocation for the future. But ultimately, even when you've created a concept, you then have to bring that concept down to now. And if you think about what, what car companies do, for example, with concept cars, you know, you go to a motor show and you see these concept cars and they're usually lit by LEDs, you know, and, uh, and they're, they're all fancy and they might be a, a funny shaped uh, seats that kind of turn to, 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 to face each other because the car's going to drive themselves. And, you know, been involved in that a little bit. Um, and, um, of course, the thing that you know is when you see a concept car, you're not going to be driving it on the road in 12 months. Um, and I, because when they, when they design a, a road car, there's a different set of things that they have to take into account. And so I always think that nothing that you design is ever, um, is ever future proof, that actually you design for now. And I think this is where I think that, 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 that um, uh, product management and, and the idea of having a product roadmap um, is, is absolutely right. That actually what you want to do is you, you, you design the best product you can for now knowing that the best product in six months time might have to have other things, might have to do different things, might have to be different to the product that you design for now. And that flexibility and thought about what a product might be and how we're gonna adapt that product over time, I think is really important. And I think much more, much more, um, much more useful than trying to um, predict the future and then um, design a future product is actually trying to say, well, if this is where we expect the future to go, then this is where we ought to start. This is our first step. And then you look for what's happened and adoption and how people are using your product. And you say, okay, well, if we're here now, 
we still think that the future is going in that direction. What's this next sensible step? So, um, and that's what I've tried to do with, I think, all of the work that we've done on Modern Human is actually kind of, uh, uh, kind of paint a picture of where the um, future might, might go and then say, well, if we believe that the future's here, you know, this is the product that we need today, but, you know, these are, the, these might be some of the things that we prioritize because we believe that the future will go in this, uh, in this sort of direction. Um, products that, products that I've designed that I'm proud of, I'm, I, I, it's one that we designed a, a long time ago, um, but I'm always really proud of the British National Formulary because of the, the impact that it had in, uh, on, on doctors and nurses and um, people who prescribe drugs. Um, particularly with with everything that happened then subsequently with the, the pandemic and you know all the pressures that the NHS is under. Essentially, this was a the, the BNF was a book. If I had a minute, I'd go and grab one off my uh, shelf just over there. It was basically like a big book that thick, but it had been designed to be the perfect dimensions to fit into a doctor's white coat pocket. Um, but it was really thick, and it was basically a catalogue of drugs. So you could look up a drug in it, and you could look up all the interactions that it might have with other drugs. You could look up all the side effects, and you know all the how you should prescribe it, all of those kind of things. It's basically the bible if you prescribe drugs. Um, and the Royal Pharmaceutical Society um, came to us and they said, like, this this feels like you know it's. It's the yellow pages of drugs, you know, and, and we all know what's happened to the yellow pages. So, like, how do we how do we bring this into um, the twenty first century? So, of course, we we turned it into an app. Um, we included on that app an interaction checker, um, and um, you know, a, a really good search. Because what the first thing that we did before we designed anything was we went and watched people using the book, and people would sit in a in their GP's kind of consulting room or they'd sit in a dispensary, or they'd, they'd stand on a ward, and they'd literally have like five fingers in this book because the patient was on three different drugs and they wanted to know whether to prescribe them X or Y. And they'd be like, have all of their fingers at the different drugs that they needed to check, and they'd be flicking backwards and forwards to try and work out the interactions between them. And so, of course, what we did is just put it in an app, easy search that you could find the drugs you were looking for, but also then you could check interactions between them and the app just check the interactions for you. Such a simple thing, but it, it saved, uh, they reckon it saved um, uh, 300,000 clinician hours uh, a month in the, the NHS. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, instead of it taking nine minutes to do this process of checking all of the drugs, it came down to a matter of seconds. Um, and so, you know, little marginal gains, but marginal gains in an NHS that is pushed to its absolute limits, it, it kind of all makes a difference. So I'm always really proud of that. Um, and, uh, you know, we won, we won um, heaps of uh, design awards for that. And uh, it was uh, it's a proud moment to be able to, to kind of make a difference. Um, and I, I, always, I always look at the work that we've done with the BBC very proudly as well, because it touches on so many people in the country. And I think as Britain, we're very proud of uh, of the BBC and uh, and what it does. And uh, you know, you see the changes and the difference that makes for millions of people. And uh, yeah, that's always cool. Brilliant. Again, some some a brilliant story there. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, and so you should be proud. I think yeah, but but it's crazy to think, right? I mean, this is this is a solution that could have come into play many many years ago. Um, you know, with, with the apps and. It's that whole kind of thing, 
thinking it through and understanding how we're going to get that to market as a you know useful bit of tech so no that's again yeah, fantastic it's, it's stories though goals and what they're trying to do from the way they currently do them yeah you know because <clears throat> you notice the goals is the goals very rarely change over time you know actually people want to achieve want to, to achieve the same things um, but the way that they achieve those goals changes radically with you know uh, introductions of new technology and things like that so when you can get and understand people's goals and people's latent needs, you know, the, the, the needs that they don't tell you about, then you, you start to be able to see, like, actually how you could use technology and, and future technology to, to kind of meet those needs in a, in, in a better way. Um, and, and that's what we've always tried to do. Brilliant. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It's, uh, this has been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Um, uh, fortunate enough to have heard you know this story twice um and i really enjoyed it so thank you so much for coming on today um paul i guess if any of the viewers uh, any of the audience um wanted, wanted to reach out to you and had further questions um wh whether for yourself or you know modern human what, what would be the best way to reach out to you I am. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Paul Jervis Heath on LinkedIn. Um, people can find my, my LinkedIn profile there. Um, they can also um, drop me an email on paul at modernhuman.co. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure to include all the links to um, Paul's contact details. And um, no, thank you for everyone who's tuned in for this. I hope you've enjoyed this session. Uh, paul, thanks again. You've been a great, um, <clears throat> great guest. Um, so uh, thank you for sharing your... Um, <clears throat> your stories and um well that's the first one of this year hopefully looking forward to some more exciting conversations over the course of this year so uh, thank you for everyone who's tuned in and until next time cheerio